This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. everyone welcome to episode 42 of the paw and order podcast i'm your co-host camille lapchuk joined by my co-host peter zankoff hey peter hey camille how you doing i'm pretty good it's good to be back together and again it feels like a long time since we've done this i feel like it has been about six weeks since we've actually uh recorded one because we had like a conference recap episode and we had a skipped up episode before that so you mean it's been it it, it feels good to be apart because the last one we were actually together so for this one we are apart we're back to our normal offices doing it over the magic of the interwebs yeah yeah and of course a ton of stuff has been going on like oh I can't my even god believe how much stuff has happened in the last like month right madness camille madness it's been uh it's been really crazy for animal law and just for us in general yeah, yeah, it really has been. So I don't know what we should talk about first. I guess the, the conference. I, I think we should talk about the conference. I mean, the conference was a huge deal. Everybody who uh, heard the last podcast will only have caught up to the date of the student conference, which was not, no offense to the students, but not the actual conference, which took place over the next two days. Yeah, that's right. So you heard day one, and then we had just an incredible weekend. Uh, you know, the Friday night was a talk by ethicist Peter Singer, which was super interesting and enjoyable. Then we got right into it on Saturday and Sunday with tons of amazing sh- sessions. Like, I gotta say, the quality of the panels at that conference was just unbelievable. I knew this was going to be a, a good event, but it surpassed even my expectations. Yeah, very high level stuff. It was uh, impressive to just be going through this and, you know, listening to speaker after speaker with really interesting things to say about different aspects of animal law topics. And it was just incredible. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit. Both you and I got to close out the conference. Um, We were the last two speakers. And it was really something to be able to reflect upon how much the depth of sort of scholarship and thinking about these issues has really uh, expanded over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. Just the the work being done in Canada right now from people from law, but other disciplines too, that complement our work is is just stunning to me. So getting everyone together in one spot just really, you know, made the conference uh, spectacular. Uh, We had a couple politicians there, uh, one sitting senator, one former senator, political staffers, uh, you know, people from all kinds of walks of life. And they all really added something special, tons of cool international people too. Yeah, it was great to, I mean, it's also a chance to catch up with people, which is wonderful to catch up with animal advocates and sort of recharge each other's batteries just with the great energy that's out there and meet with young people. That's why, to me, the student conference, which we obviously dealt with in the last uh, Paw and Order podcast, was so truly special because it really gave us a chance to uh, dialogue with you know young people who are just starting to think about these issues but it was incredible like first of all I mean how many people were there the conference was absolutely packed 
Oh, yeah, we had over 200 people there. It sold out like two months beforehand. And we could have sold way more tickets if we'd had the space. Yeah, no, it was a very well run event. My uh, tip of the hat to um, to uh, um, Jody Lazar. I'm not I'm not tipping my hat to you again, Camille. You already got the hero last episode. So like, that's enough. I don't want your ego to get out of control. I have received my kudos. I will accept them and not request anything further. The conference was great. Thanks to everyone that played a role. And uh, we're going to do it again. So stay tuned. We're looking at dates now. We're going to confirm something soon, but likely around the same time of year at the University of Toronto in 2020. Yeah, very exciting just to hear this is all going forward. And again, like we're not really doing it justice, Camille, but there's no way to go through all the talks that were heard. There were just so many wonderful talks and so many that reflected on different aspects of animal law. I mean, it went from everything to legal representation to animal prosecution, pretty much the gamut of issues that we run across in this podcast. Yeah, animal experimentation, enforcement issues, uh, indigenous issues, and the indigenous relationship to animals, it really did run the gamut. So, you know, the the conference website is still up. If you haven't taken a look at the program, but you want to get an idea of what was discussed, you can go do that. And, uh, you know, for everyone else, I encourage you to join us next year. It's going to be obviously a good one again. Absolutely. We are very excited about this whole aspect of uh, uh, growing the discourse and the scholarship amongst people who really care about these issues. So very exciting uh, to see what comes out of this going forward. Congrats on a first conference. We're looking forward to many more. Very much so. But the conference, Peter, is not the only thing that the animal justice folks have been up to. Far from it. Far from it. Tell me more. We've also managed to fit in two court cases so far this month. (laughs) Wow. So um, last week we were in court on uh, a case about anti-Canada goose ads that were placed on Toronto transit shelters. This was so interesting, Peter. It was a case actually filed by PETA because PETA was the organization that put up the ads. And the ads were, you know, not, they weren't offensive. They weren't gruesome. They weren't graphic. Really, they just had a picture of a coyote and or uh, a duck and, uh, you know, drew the viewer's attention to the fact that these are animals and shouldn't be used for their fur or their their down. And the ad's called for a boycott of Canada Goose. So they went up about a year ago and right away, Astral Media, which is the company that contracts with the city of Toronto to run those bus shelters on behalf of the city, Uh, They took the ads down and they said that they'd received a bunch of complaints internally and externally, whatever that means. Turns out, Peter, they didn't receive a bunch of complaints. They received one complaint from Canada Goose, who reminded (laughs) them that Canada Goose spends a bunch of money with Astral for those same transit shelter spots. So obviously they were taken down to stifle criticism of a major advertiser. PETA sued over this, which is great. And animal justice intervened in the case. Uh, We wanted to really draw the court's attention to the charter of rights issues at play here, particularly free expression, and point out that we just can't let citizens be silenced and prevented from putting those messages up on city property that should be available to everyone. It engages uh, Section 2B of the charter, freedom of expression. So it was a really interesting court uh, day in court. It was the Divisional Court in Toronto. And Arden Beddoes, who does a lot of our litigation, came to argue it. We also had great help from Ben Oliphant. And, of course, the whole team and our colleague Caitlin Mitchell worked on it. And, uh, yeah, the judges, the morning was really interesting. They seemed really focused on a jurisdictional issue and not so much on the substance of the case. 
And we thought they were maybe going to rule it from the bench right after lunch. Uh, but then we came back and they're like, okay, now we want to hear about from everybody all over again about the substantive issues in the case. So who knows? Who wow. knows which way it's going to go? Good stuff. Yeah. What, what I liked about it, I, I got to follow Camille um, was putting up uh, videos, you know, of the case as animal justice often does. So it was good. We got to uh, follow along as you told us about how the arguments went and all that, which was great. Yeah, we always think it's important not only to do the cases, but also to communicate with people about what's going on so the public gets it too. I, I so particularly that was great and fun to work with Gary Grill and Leo Saloom, who were representing PETA. They're longtime animal lawyers, mostly do criminal law and defend activists. So it was fun to be with them in court. Cool. I, I especially like that it gave you a chance, Camille, to do that I'm serious folded arm look. You know that when Camille folds her arms, <laughs> she's getting serious. That's right. No more joking around. Animal lawyers are coming for you, Canada Goose. Keep an eye out. Every time Camille gets her legal outfit on, she's always got the arms folded. There's like, I'm serious now. We mean business. I love it. Loved it. Actually, I did love the videos. I thought they were very instructive. So it was good to keep up. That was not the only court case, Camille. You had another court appearance uh, just before the conference, I believe. It was like a day or two before. That's right. Two days before the conference, we were in, in court at the Court of Appeal in Ontario, um, again with Arden in town to argue for us and a lot of participation by Ben. Uh, this was the Bogarts case, the case that struck down the Ontario SPCA uh, being able to do law enforcement in the province of Ontario. So super interesting context because when that judgment first came out, and we talked about it extensively on the podcast back in January... Uh, that was a big deal. The, the court found that there was a new principle of fundamental justice that meant that law enforcement agencies have to be transparent and accountable. So they need oversight by the government and they need an accountability mechanism so that you can complain about officers or their conduct. And the OSPCA lacked that because it's a private charity that does public enforcement. So that decision came out and the context is now quite different. The OSPCA voluntarily decided to draw, withdraw from enforcement. So now the court's trying to delve back into these issues and decide what the best approach is. So, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a very engaged panel. I think they really thought about it carefully. And at this point, we're just, again, waiting for a decision. But um, it was interesting, Peter. There were other interveners in the case. We were the only ones at the lower level. But uh, by the time it got upstairs, we had the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, which is very, very helpful. They, they took similar positions to the ones that we had. Uh, we had the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, which had concerns with private enforcement as well. And then kind of on the other side, uh, more supporting the government, which was saying that this regime is fine. You've got uh, the Railway Association of Canada, because they actually have a private police force. So that was kind of hmm. interesting. And hmm. then am I missing someone? Maybe that was the only one that was supporting. Well, it was. Yeah, it was I think it was. Yeah, it was good to hear so many diverse perspectives coming in on that. But, oh, I know, uh, I know. The other one was the the uh, Attorney General of Canada, so the feds weighed in on it too. Right. And um, what was interesting, Camille, to go back to the conference for a sec, was to me one of the best panels we had at the conference was sort of one that examined the future of uh, animal cruelty investigations, uh, sort of looking at Bogart's, uh, sort of a post-Bogart's landscape, as it were. And I thought that was just an incredible panel with like sort of a bunch of different ideas, just to show there's no shortage of ideas ideas out there uh, to look at the way in which we can do things differently if we put our minds to it. And of course, there were some voices sounding uh, concern 
about, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't get rid of the SPCA just yet. And it was just a fascinating uh, discussion on that topic. Yeah, I agree. Just some of the, the people working on this issue the most across the country. Super, super good panel. Well, that's uh, great stuff, Camille. And of course, we should also point out, uh, um, I did this on the last podcast very briefly, just talk about the the, the Edmonton Zoo case out of Alberta that has also uh, now been finalized. And what I mean by finalized is that uh, everybody has made their submissions and the um, matter of whether or not we will be hearing about Lucy at the Supreme Court of Canada is now in the hands of three Supreme Court judges. So we will be waiting eagerly um, as that decision has been finalized. I was lucky enough to do a little bit of work on the leave application in conjunction with uh, some of the lawyers who are based out of Calgary uh, who are putting together submissions. So uh, really optimistic that we will get to have leave uh, in that case so that the issue of uh, public interest standing in particular and the manner in which we can challenge government decisions uh, involving animals can be uh, put before the highest court in the country. Yeah, super important animal law case, and I, I really hope it gets leave. Do you do you have a sense, Peter, of how long it usually takes the Supreme Court to decide leave applications? Um, I've said this before. It sort of depends uh, largely upon whether or not um, the court there's division on the court about the merits of the case. So um, when the when the case is viewed by the three judges, if the three judges agree one way or another, meaning they agree that it shouldn't be heard or they agree that it should be heard, it goes very quickly. It's usually um, a month, six weeks, maybe two months at the, outs- at the, lo- at the longest. But um, when there's division on the court, and that means that one of the judges on the panel thinks it should be heard or shouldn't be heard, if there's division between the judges, then it has to go to the entire court. And that obviously takes a lot longer because then, you know, it has to be circulated and they have to read all the materials and all the other judges have to weigh in on whether the case should be heard. So amazingly, if it's a shorter time period, it just means there's unanimity. It doesn't mean you're more likely to get it or not get it. Um, Whereas if it takes longer, it means that uh, there's division as to whether or not it should be heard. Oh, I, I didn't appreciate that. That's super interesting to know. Yeah, because that's the perspective the you get as a former Supreme Court clerk. Yes, actually, I, I've learned that more. You know, I, I actually didn't know that from when I was a clerk. I've learned that because I've done three leave applications. So <laughs> I've had you know, <laughs> the, the first leave application I did was unanimous. So it came back so much quicker. You know what I mean? And then and then suddenly I was like, you know, with the second one we did, which was the Barton decision, we were like waiting and waiting. And we're like, why is this taking so long? And when we got the verdict, we saw it was from the whole court. So they actually you oh. actually do find out you do find out if it's the entire court weighing in on whether leave should be granted or dismissed, then you know that it was a split decision at the original three. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I know. I like it. Yeah. Cool. So that is well, what else is going on. Well, that is it. But Camille, we're, I feel like we're burying the lead. I don't know if everybody knows that. I'm, a, I'm an old journalism graduate. Burying the lead means we're forgetting about what's really important. And we forgot to mention that my 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 co-host is not just a pawn order star. She's like a you know a national television star. Camille, tell us all about it. Well, be careful, Peter. I might leave the podcast. Oh, and start my don't own worry. TV That's coming soon. up. That's coming up in a moment. Uh, Go. No, unlikely, unlikely. Okay. Well, we had the federal election this week, and I actually joined Global Nationals election night coverage on Monday. Uh, as a political commentator. So I used to, probably most of you already know this, but I was Elizabeth May's press secretary for a number of years, the leader of the Green Party. 
And I've run for the Greens myself a few times and obviously super engaged in politics. So they were looking for someone with that perspective on election night to provide commentary. So I joined and it was a really fun panel, actually. It was uh, me, Nathan Cullen from the NDP. Uh, he's a former member of parliament, just kind of stepped down and didn't run again. Natalie DeRosier, who used to be the dean of uh, Ottawa U's law school, actually, and also the head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Uh, but more importantly for this, she used to be a liberal member of provincial parliament. Mm. And uh, then Brad Wall from the Saskatchewan, uh, province of Saskatchewan, he used to be the premier. So it was a kind of an intimidating group of impressive people, Peter, but I feel like I, you know, tried to hold my own and we had a really fun time. Uh, I've never been, well, actually I have been on election night specials before, but it was kind of a different experience to watch the results roll in and have like really great analysis on the spot uh, rather than be sitting on my couch with like three computer screens going. <laughs> Well, Camille, I didn't watch the whole night with you there, but Camille was fantastic. I, I liked the choice of green dress in particular, Camille. Very fitting for a member I, of the I Green Party. I thought that was appropriate. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's actually a tough thing to figure out what to wear to these things because you need an outfit to which a microphone can easily attach. So, well, Camille, yeah, I think I managed to find something. As usual, Camille's being too modest because, like, what the behind the scenes of all this is that, like. Global's already offering her a position as a, 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 a you know regular commentator, and Paw and Order has had to up its offer just to keep Camille on the podcast. We've had to, you know, <laughs> we've had to triple her salary just to keep her on here and keep Global to keep her hands off. So hands off, Global. Oh, are you bribing me, Peter? I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> we're tripling your salary of zero, Camille, and we're we're happy to yeah, have you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it doesn't matter Camille, if you triple it when it's zero. Camille was fantastic. So congrats. I thought you were great. My family loved well, watching thanks. you. It was, it was exciting. It was exciting. My kids, that was the only part of the election they watched. I said, Camille's on, Camille's on. And they came running downstairs. Oh my God. So funny. Well, I was getting text messages from everyone. You can use your phone and your computer while you're doing this because you want to monitor things in real time. So it was fun because I was actually interacting with people and like getting results from different writings before the TV had them. And yeah, it was, it was super cool. And, well, you know, Peter, we got to address the, the election, election results. Yes, the election itself. There was something kind of cool that came out of that. I mean, first thing, it's a liberal minority government at this point. There's an op, uh, possibility of the liberals partnering with the NDP or the bloc to get legislation passed or even the conservatives if they wanted to. Uh, and then there's three new green MPs, which is which is cool. Or I should say three green MPs, uh, Elizabeth May, Paul Manley on Vancouver Island, and uh, Jenica Atwin in Van, uh, sorry, in Fredericton, who was um, not a surprise, but definitely wasn't sure that she'd pick up a seat. So that was that was really cool to see. But the most important thing for people listening to this podcast, Peter, is that 25 out of 27 of the candidates that we endorsed as animal justice uh, won their seats. So we now have 25 animal friendly members of parliament in there. And I know many of them are just ready to get down to work for animals and that with a minority parliament, we might get some good stuff passed. So I am excited. But I'm just crying, Camille, because one of the ones who didn't make it was poor Ruth Ellen Brousseau in, in, in Quebec, who is like, I can't believe she lost so narrowly. I know. She's a legend. She, she was the MP first elected in 2011 for the NDP, who 
uh, kind of put her name on the ballot and didn't expect to win and had spent some time in Vegas during the campaign. So she was kind of like known as the Vegas MP for a while, but she actually turned out to be an incredible representative, very well loved and really cared about animals. So yeah, yeah was I was sad. I was sad. I was sad to see her go, but uh, yeah, very sad. Um, and, and I should also point out that as you know, I, I live in Alberta and as you know, you know, just by, by pure numbers, you assume that I live in a conservative riding, but as it turns out, I happen to live in the only riding in the in the whole province that's not conservative. The only one in Alberta or Saskatchewan. That's correct. Thirty-three. Well, I, I don't keep track of Saskatchewan, but thirty-three out of thirty-four in Alberta went conservative. The only riding that did not is my riding, so that's kind of neat. And what's the name of your new MP? Because it's, it's it's it wasn't an incumbent. Heather Heather McPherson. Yeah, I didn't. Okay. I, I can't say I voted on the basis of her record. It wasn't something that you know. It was more just a question of uh, you know. I think she won because, you know, the incumbent was an NDP in this riding. So it's been NDP for years. This has been, this was Anne McClellan's old riding. So this, this riding hasn't gone conservative in quite some time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the past MP, Linda Duncan was good environmentalist and well-liked. That is correct. So that is what has been going on. My God, there's been a lot. And Camille, that is what has been going on. But now we got to talk about what's coming because boy, we're entering into animal justice busy season. Oh, are we ever? We thought that was happening already, but really it's just getting started. So a couple things. First of all, we launched Voiceless for Animal Justice again this year. And if you were involved in this last year, or if you remember, it's a day of silence on November 9th, where people don't speak for 24 hours in support of animals, in support of the animals whose voices are silenced by industries that abuse and kill them. So people are going to you know, post photos on social media with a red X on their hand over their mouth and uh, raise money from their, their networks to support our work. And last year, it was a ton of fun. Um, I actually, mea culpa, I didn't manage to stay silent the entire day last year. Camille, either. for shame. I know. So I have to do that this year. Last year, I have a good excuse. My city councilor was canvassing my door when I got home from work. And I was just so excited to have a chance to talk to him about animals, and I forgot. So... This year, I'm going to do it. That's why I'm not doing. I'm not doing the day of silence. No, I'll just like I'll just give some money instead. Uh, It's too hard, especially because it's on a weekday, and my wife does so much work with the kids that if I take a day and I'm like, look, I'm not going to talk, that's really hard to do when my two kids are like jumping up and down on top of me. So I don't think I would make it through the first hour. I'm I'm sure you wouldn't, but you know that's that's why we kind of structured this in a way that anyone can take part. So if you're like Peter and you just want to donate, you can. There um, you, you can go. Visit animaljustice.ca/voiceless. That's slash voiceless, and you'll be redirected to a page where you can find all the information about it and the different teams and individual fundraisers. If you want to join up, uh, you can choose a day of a day that's convenient for you. Most people are going to do November 9th, but you could choose another day if that works better for you. Uh, so it's really fun. Uh, I encourage everyone to join, or at least if you can't, uh, maybe consider donating. Especially if you're listening to this podcast. We should have a pawn order team. That's what we need. That's what we yeah, need. Oh, it would be me and you. <laughs> and you're not doing it, so I guess it's just me. No, it would be like pawn order, uh, you know. We, we should we should set up a specific uh, team because look I can see I'm looking at it right now I'm looking at the event leaderboard are they set up into teams Camille I don't see any teams 
there's definitely teams. Like we've got the staff team already with me and Shannon and Caitlin on it. And I think Sarah too. Um, but yeah, no, anyone who's listening who wants to create a pawn order listeners. Oh, team, wait a minute. I do see it. the teams. We love you. I do see teams. Well, now I'm more intrigued, Good. Camille. Hey, look at that. Not only that, Camille, the animal justice staff team is getting its rear end kicked by the Animal Justice University of Alberta chapter. There we go. Damn. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> I think oh. I'm going to give them money instead of the animal justice staff just to <laughs> incentivize you, Camille, to work a little bit harder. Okay, I can appreciate that. I like your strategy. Very, very good. Fantastic. Well, that's great news. I'm very excited about the uh, about uh, Voices for Animal Justice. But Camille, if there's one thing I really like, it's a good party. Well, there's plenty of those coming up too. So the ones that you're all invited to are our annual holiday parties. And we've got those this year. We're having three. So there's going to be one in Toronto on December 6th, Friday, December 6th. Uh, the previous weekend, November 29th in Vancouver. And we're going to have one in Ottawa too, but I'm still choosing the date because we want to make sure members of Parliament are back by then so they can join us if they want to. So we'll keep you posted on that. If you aren't already on the Animal Justice email list, you can sign up via our website and we'll, we'll get you a notice about those when the information comes out. But you know, Peter, those are not the parties I'm most excited about this week. I'm actually excited to come visit you in Edmonton this weekend for your birthday party. Camille is coming to my birthday party. Hooray. I'm very That's old, right. Camille. Don't You're let the very old. Don't let the podcast you, voice ho- don't let the podcast voice fool you. So I can't say what the number is? You could say what it or is. I'm I? I'm old. I'm turning fifty. You guys, 50, Peter's turning 50. 50, 50 very old years. So I'm having a big party, and my buddy Camille is coming out to see me. That is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yes, and it's, it's a Halloween dress-up party, so oh, I still yeah. have to find a costume. Yeah, if you we know have a been... costume that I should wear, please email me because I can't <laughs> find one. <laughs> we have been working very hard on this party. The decorations are going to be fantastic. Unfortunately, Pawn Order listeners will not be privy to them. But uh, we'll talk about it on the next Pawn Order because it's going to be just a fantastic weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to visit our friends at Padmanadi, so that's going to be great too. So yeah, very excited. Well, I might post some Instagram pictures of your decorations. So if you guys follow me on Instagram, you might see them. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can do that. You can do that. No, it's going to be great. I'm really yeah. excited. And before you skipped over it, I just wanted to point out that of those holiday parties, it's early days, but there will only be one where the full pawn order team will be in attendance. But I have committed to come back to Toronto. I didn't come last year, but I am coming this year. So I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody in Toronto. I will be bringing my daughter with me, my daughter Penny. She wants to come to an animal justice party. So so uh, we'll talk about this, you know, closer to the podcast, but don't forget to say hello and tell me that you listen to Paw in Order. Oh, we are going to have fun. It's going to be great. All right. Well, we're going to get into the news soon, but quickly before we do that, I just want to remind you that you can support us on Patreon and we are now up to $176 from patrons per month. Thanks to two new folks here, Suzanne and Heather. Thank you very much. You too. And we are still short of our help- $200 goal. That was our goal. That's right. $200. We're only 24 bucks away from that. Really wow. close. If you think you can help us make up that gap, you can do so at patreon.com slash paw and order. Please help us. We need to retain Camille. That money, <laughs> that money, that money is going to keep Camille away from global. So we got to, you know, you don't want to lose yeah. Camille. 
Very important. Very important. Also, a reminder that if you love listening to Paw and Order, please leave us a review on, oh, on uh, Apple Podcasts because it helps other people find the podcast. Um, Peter, there was a really nice new review by someone named Alice, who's actually from uh, Italy. And Alice says, love, 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 last love in capitals. This love. podcast is an Italian law student, will graduate in two months, finally, who decided to pursue a legal career to be able to change things for animals. This is so encouraging and inspiring. Animal law is not really a thing in Italy and many other European countries, so I didn't even know a podcast like this could exist. I found the Stampede episodes particularly interesting, as my boyfriend is Canadian and used to live in Calgary before moving to Europe. Keep up the good work, guys. Lots of love from Venice, Italy. Thanks, Alice. That's so nice. Thanks, you Alice. Guys should follow in Alice's footsteps and leave us a review so we can spread the word. Yeah, Alice is putting our Canadian listeners to shame because I think our last review from a Canadian listener was in August. So I'm I'm, I'm reaching that point, Camille, where I'm going to go back to wondering if we have any listeners. That's it's. It, I, I was told at the law conference that people were listening, but with the lack of reviews, I'm really not sure. So we well, don't want that to happen. Guilt trip listeners, go on there. Absolutely. And finally, we should say what we always love to say, that we are sponsored by our friends at The Grinning Goat. And we love The Grinning Goat. And The Grinning Goat would offer a special rebate for our listeners. Paw15. Enter at checkout for 15% off at www.grinninggoat.ca. It is a perfect time of year, Camille, to get your hands on some amazing boots. I've seen their winter boots. They are fabulous. And uh, some fantastic winter apparel. So, of course, uh, Grinning Goat ships nationwide. So you can go to grinninggoat.ca and enter your special Paw and Order discount code, Paw15, to get 15% off your purchase. All right. Well, Peter, as usual, there's a ton of stuff in the news. We can't talk about it all, but we've chosen a few stories to discuss. The first one is an update on uh, some some chats we've had previously on this podcast over the summer, but it's a decision from uh, Justice Lauren Sawson of the Ontario Superior Court in a case about glue traps used for or, or offered for sale in Ontario. So you remember this story, Peter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the glue, we've talked about the glue trap story um, on this podcast several times, and uh, we talked about the, some of the challenges that were inherent in this particular case in that uh, the, the Canadians for Animal Protection, who were the applicants, were trying to effectively um, um, apply for a declaration against a bunch of private companies. And uh, essentially, that was, we always, we argued that was going to be challenging. That was a little bit different than some of the other challenges that have been run in the past. And of course, those companies objected, suggesting that Canadians for Animal Protection did not have standing to challenge uh, their selling of glue traps, which are uh, viewed as being horrible ways to kill uh, mice and other rodents in your house. That's right. So the, the case was decided by Justice Lauren Sawson, and it's interesting that it came from him because uh, Justice Sawson used to teach legal process both at U of T and then was the dean of Osgoode Hall Law School. So, you know, this is a very good judge who, who knows his stuff, and especially on the legal process question. And he decided the standing issue in the motion to dismiss that was brought by all these companies who were part of the lawsuit. Uh, what he actually found is that Canadians for Animal Protection uh, didn't have standing to bring the case. Now, the test for standing is, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's three parts to it. And 
he found that, uh, you know, in a judgment that I think overall is it's not terrible for animals, but he found that the applicants failed to meet the, the last part of the test for standing. Yeah, I think that's right. And I actually, I agree with you. I think it's actually a pretty favorable decision for animals. There's quite a few uh, statements in it that are, 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 I think, quite favorable to the ability to raise standing in a different sort of case and certainly uh, refers to the flexible and generous approach that should be given to public standing. And obviously what's more positive is, you know, quotes in detail from Justice uh, Fraser's decision in, in the Lucy decision, the Edmonton uh, City versus Reese case, in which she argued that standing should be granted. So I thought by and large, in terms of dealing with the issues, um, uh, Justice Sawson was quite favorable to animal uh, interests quite generally. Yeah, that's right. So he agreed that the applicants were raising a serious issue that, you know, could be considered by a court. And he agreed that they had a real stake or interest in the outcome of the case. Uh, and that it was, you know, um, a potential good way to pursue it. But uh, it failed on the third part of the test is that he thought she should pursue the matter first through other channels before bringing it to the court. Mm. And that would be things like, filing complaints against specific members of the public who use glue traps or filing reports with the police or the OSPCA. I mean, that's that's changed now, but whoever enforces those laws in this province uh, or potentially even privately prosecuting or attempting to privately prosecute people uh, in this way. So, you know, I, I'm not sure I agree with his characterization that that should have been done first because I don't think the test... Uh, and this this test for anyone who's interested is set out in a case called Downtown East Side Sex Workers case. Um, I, I'm not sure that the test requires that it be like the only way to bring this before the court. Or, or nor does it nor does way. it nor does it necessarily require that you exhaust other options, right? The question is whether yes. it's a reasonable and effective way to bring it forward. See, that's why I'm I'm a little skeptical of his decision too, and I I think he really relied on that fact um, in contrasting this case with the Reese case, where he felt that the party had already pursued other routes to investigate or prosecute Edmonton Zoo, and he felt that the the, the applicants in this case had not. But I I, I tend to agree with you. Like I'm not really sure what that means like if you go to the police and complain and they do nothing about it or do you have to lay a private prosecution which is you know okay so you lay a private prosecution and then the government stays it like what what actually has to happen what level of of uh, of uh, activity has to happen before you can come back and say there's no other way like that's that's the part that's a little bit challenging and I think if you say that in every animal case you've got to go and do that you're certainly making it more onerous time-consuming and expensive for uh, animal interest groups to pursue routes that are less likely to be effective than the route you're trying to take. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure it's a, a realistic test. I also think it kind of ignores the on-the-ground reality of how difficult it is to do those things, whether it's privately prosecuting, getting complaints filed and, and actually uh, listened to by enforcement agencies and pursuing other means. So not to mention, we'll he yeah. actually, he actually says one of the other possibilities, this was the one I was particularly skeptical of is to bring a civil action against the respondents or others involved in the design, manufacture, marketing and use. Like what would that civil action be based on? 
Like that's what I, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't really understand like how you could do that and how that would be an effective way of dealing with the issue. Now, let me just say, Camille, I, I shouldn't say that, um, keep in mind that he didn't go on to discuss the next issue, which was whether the action was an abusive process, uh, because he found they didn't have standing. Uh, I've said from the get go that I think this case is a bit challenging because we're not going after a government actor. And what's particularly interesting is that he said that for standing considerations, it doesn't really matter if you're going after a, a private actor or a public actor. Like it doesn't change the nature of the, of, the, of the application, nor does it change the nature of whether you have standing. So I actually thought that was, that was, that was certainly a good decision overall. Um, but it doesn't necessarily resolve whether the action against private groups in this way constitutes an abusive process, which is a matter he didn't rule on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's a, a big unknown in this case. And, and uh, the, the applicants have some options now, they could choose to appeal this, or they could maybe try going through these hoops that Justice Austin suggests that they should jump through, and perhaps refile it after they've done that and see if this, this meets the standing test. Now, of course, that abusive process question is still a live issue. And that may well, um, I'm not, not may well, I'm sure it will be argued by the applicants or the respondents, because they did bring that up. But We'll be following this for sure. If an appeal is going to happen, it's going to be filed somewhat soon. So we'll keep you up to date on any news. I did like, by the way, um, one little aspect of this that I think is positive, especially is that um, the respondents did not seek costs. And more importantly, Justice Sausens found that costs would not have been appropriate in this case. So I think that's really good, too, in terms of having a motion for public interest standing. Uh, it's certainly encouraging that you can go forward and try things like this without having to worry about getting slapped in the face uh, with costs sanctions, which can be fairly onerous um, if you lose. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's been one of those those issues we've discussed before on this podcast about uh, sort of the structural challenges to bringing animal law cases, and you know that that type of decision does remove one of those. Cool. Well, that was one case. There was another case that I wanted to bring to your attention, Camille. This one did not get nearly the publicity, but I think it raises some interesting animal law issues that I wanted to share with our podcast listeners. The case in question can be found online. It's a case rather unremarkable case called Thornton, T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N, and the citation for those of you who know how to find it, and of course we'll link to it in our show notes, is 2019 ABPC 247, which is the Alberta Provincial Court. And what I thought was interesting about this case, Camille, it's a pretty simple, straightforward assault case, right? This is a garden variety um, you know, two, it's a, it's sort of a landlord tenant situation, not really landlord tenant per se, but in any event, um, the landlord and a tenant get into a dispute. It seems the landlord's not that happy with the tenant anymore. So the tenant comes back to the apartment and wants to get her stuff. And the main part of her stuff is her cat, Camille. And uh, yeah. the, the landlord sort of refuses to let her get her cat for reasons that are not clearly explained in the judgment. And so the the accused, you know, ends up, I think, hitting her pretty hard. Is that fair to say? <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was a, a real hit or if it was just kind of a scuffle as she tried to kind of force her way back into okay. the place where she'd been living. She but pushed her anyway, in the, in the area contact. of her neck and chest. So it's, it's, it's pretty much agreed that she, she does that. And then, uh, and then, you know, the woman's husband comes down and sort of takes control of the accused and forces her out of the residence. 
So let's yeah. assume for the moment there was an assault. It seems to be pretty clearly proven. I don't think that the 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 accused person um, complains about that. She seems to say. But what she does try to do, Camille, which is the part that I found interesting, and I hope you found interesting as well, is she tries to raise the defense of property. And essentially, the basis of her defense was her the defense of property is that she was trying to retrieve her cat. Yeah, that's right. Super interesting. Her cat was still inside the uh, the house where she'd been living, and she said she was trying to get that. And you know, Peter, you can explain this better than I can because I believe that the the judge cites one of your works in the judgment as uh, in support of some things that the judge was saying. But, he does. He does. You know, my yeah. understanding is that a defense to assault is, I guess, you termed it defensive property, but you know, something that you have uh, uh, lawful rights to trying to retrieve it. Yeah, it's essentially, yeah, it's 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 the defense of property. And the problem with the defense of property is that it's a pretty narrow defense. Um, we don't want to give people as much right to go around beating people up so that they can take back their property as we do, for example, uh, in contrast, in, in, in the area of self-defense, where we provide a great deal more leeway. But what's interesting in this case is the way it was decided is the judge rejected the defense of property. And the reason for that is that the judge took a pretty orthodox approach to property. He said, well, the cat is property. And that the person has to believe on reasonable grounds that another person is um, about to take the property. Right? That's the issue. Um, is that, you know, you're taking the property. And essentially, the judge decided, well, she wasn't taking the property because the property was already there. So as a result, the person was found to be guilty, even though it seemed that they were going in to retrieve their cat. Yeah. Yeah, no, interesting decision. And interesting, of course, and not surprising legally. There was no question that the cat was property. Yeah, absolutely. Cat definitely counts. No, no doubt about that. But but the reason I wanted to bring this up is because it, 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 it highlights one of the problems in this area. I mean, frankly, I could criticize the decision directly or indirectly. So let's start with indirectly. I mean, indirectly, what I think it highlights is, and, and let me just say, I'm not, I'm not here to defend the way she acted in the particular case, right? Like, I, I don't want to get into that. Let's just, like, I, I, I don't, I didn't hear the case and I don't know whether it was necessary, but let's, let's assume for the moment that the accused had good reason to believe that, you know, the other person wasn't letting her get her cat. The cat might've been in some danger and she was concerned enough. She lived there, it was her cat and she wanted, you know, to take the cat with her. Right. Let's assume that what bothers me about it is that if this was a person, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Right. If it was uh, any person and you had reason to believe that that person was being held or that person was, um, you know, your child and you had no access to them, you would be entitled to use force to get that person back. But because it's an animal and the animal is just property, we impose a different sort of standard. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge double standard, huge double standard. And, you know, really difficult to understand uh, what was going on here, because there could be nuances to the way the trial unfolded that we're not really appreciating. Sure. But... <laughs> yeah, that's always the case in these criminal trials. You really never know what the evidence actually was. And well, but what, was, what bothers was me... on that, but... 
Yeah, yeah you're, I think you're correct. And it could have been on different things. But what bothers me is that the way the judge decides the case, it doesn't really matter what those issues were, Camille. Do you know what I mean? Like, there may not have been good reason. The attack might not have been necessary. We don't know exactly what the motives of the person holding the cat were. But my point being is, none of those are the reason why the case was decided. If you use this judge's reasoning, if it's applied to future cases, people could really hold on to a cat. They're not taking it. They're just holding it. I could hold your animal, and you'd have no right to use force to retrieve that animal. Yeah, no, it's, it's bizarre. It's like because the cat's already inside the house and you're preventing access, the court's viewing that differently as if you're, you know, in an external location and someone takes the cat and prevents access. Like, it's, it's, it has the same effect. So why does it have a different legal effect? It's, it's strange. And, and more importantly, this is one of those situations where had I been in front of the court, I would have argued for a different way of looking at the case. I would argue that not all properties should be treated alike. For example, we should recognize that, okay, while the code is concerned about taking property, right, in certain situations, that's fine where that property is inanimate property. If it's my book, I should not be able to use force just because my book is in your house and I want to go and get my book. That's a very different matter than if I have a realistic concern. It seems to me we should be willing, more willing to excuse the acts of the perpetrator when there is a living being at stake. And I think that I think let's just say I think a creative reading of the section would have realized that we might be able to treat different types of property differently, which is, you know, again, a theme of many of the talks that were given at the conference this past week. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and there's a, you know, a huge practical difference when you think about possessing a book versus possessing a cat. Uh, one of them needs care, food, water, attention, medical help to live. Uh, one of them has emotional needs. And one of them is just an inanimate object. Correct. Who, you, know, you can leave behind on a table for, for months at a time and, and its status doesn't change. Right. So, More, yeah, I mean, moreover, I, the book's not going bad. anywhere. Why should I why should I have to go, for example, if someone's holding my cat and just keeping it right? They're just like, no, you can't have it. But I didn't take it. So you can't use, you know, defense property. I mean, go sort it out. Go call the police. Go get this. Go get that. Go raise legal action. Why should I have to go through all that when my cat could escape? They could let my cat go like a variety of things can happen that are not going to happen with a book. The only da danger to my book is that they'll destroy it, in which case they'll be liable. But, I mean, I'm less worried about them killing my cat than I am worried about harming it, letting it go, not treating it well, etc. Just, again, it seems to me that there's a lack of sophistication in the way the law thinks about animals. It's one thing. It's certainly bad enough that they get grouped into the property basket. But if you're going to group them in the property basket, it seems to me this case is sort of, you know, not a particularly important case per se, but certainly interesting way of thinking about that we need to think about these animal cases a little bit differently. Yeah, no, it's the kind of case where if animal justice had known about it beforehand, I, I think we would have tried to intervene Me and make too. those points. Me too. Well, that yeah. was an interesting case. I'm glad uh, we had a chance to talk about it. Yeah, no, super interesting to get your thoughts on it. Okay, well... Um, I think we got one more item, Camille. Yeah, we do have one Jessica more. Jessica Scott and... Reed, our good friend who was at the Animal Law Conference. Yes, she was. Jessica Scott Reed is a journalist covering animal issues, and she wrote a very important piece, I believe, as uh, part of the Global Mail's opinion page, arguing that fish should be part of the animal welfare conversation. And she makes a lot of really important points, which is that, uh, you know, first of all, we, we sort of 
have a hard time connecting with fish in the same way that we do with mammals or even birds because they're so unlike us. They live in a different environment. We don't see them in the same way and why this is problematic. But she sort of focuses on a pretty disturbing incident which happened in Newfoundland, which is where uh, 1.8 million salmon suffocated to death in early September in fish farms uh, due to a lack of oxygen in the water. And she points out how awful this is must, this must have been to them to be stressed and fighting for oxygen and, and cramped warm waters. And of course, the uh, horrible situation that workers are now dealing with, with like just meters and meters of dead fish sludge, which is an ecological disaster. So, you know, I think it's important that she's talking about this uh, because fish typically do not get enough attention and uh, lack largely legal protections in Canada and, and, and don't have standards for, for their treatment. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I read the story, Camille, and it's just, it, it was really, I made a point of sort of looking at all the stories about all the fish that had died in that fish farm in Newfoundland. And it was just one story after another. You heard about every single victim, Camille, I swear to God, from the Newfoundland fishermen to the economy, to people enjoying the beaches. It just went on and on and on. And there was like nary a word about the actual fish who, who suffered who suffered dramatically during this ridiculous process. And, and, and frankly, I just, I don't even think we're at a level yet of even thinking about fish welfare. I know that most pieces of legislation, it's arguable whether most animal protection legislation even covers fish. And the next time, Camille, I want you to do me a favor. The next time someone launches a prosecution involving fish cruelty or fish uh, neglect, I want you to wake me, Camille, because I'm going to go to sleep until that happens, okay? Well, I can count on zero hands the number of times that's happened in Canada so far. But you're right. Or, or it's just a about anywhere. discussed issue. Yeah, oh, just, yeah about just about anywhere. anywhere. There's, there's a handful of cases. There's a handful of cases. And I know uh, there was one interesting issue about the New Brunswick or Nova Scotia SPCA seizing a goldfish from someone who wasn't allowed to have animals. And that was kind of cool. But like largely it just doesn't get discussed. No, and I'm and glad I'm glad to see it was discussed at length at the conference this year. Like there have been some law articles. There are people who are starting to take on this question of fish in a little bit more uh, with a little bit more care and vigor. Yeah, yeah, and it's really important. I mean, to your point about people not really paying attention to this or thinking of fish as victims, I kind of analogize this type of fish you know, kill in, in my mind to barn fires, very similar situation. We're farming these animals. Uh, in this situation, millions of fish died. It's usually in the hundreds or thousands of, uh, of animals who are killed in barn fires. And so this is even more significant, even more suffering involved than those situations. And, uh, there's just so little outrage about it. It's, it's sad. Yeah, absolutely. So, so good on you. Thanks, uh, for that, uh, that very good piece. Yeah. All right. And so for our main topic today, Peter, we've got a really special interview. We do. We uh, have a special interview. Um, we took the opportunity, since we were in the presence of so many great animal law scholars, to uh, interview a few of them about their work. And we will be releasing those interviews periodically over the next couple of months. And our first interview is with Professor Jody Lazar. Quite fitting, since she uh, organized or co-organized the conference that we just attended in Halifax. And we had the opportunity to speak with Jody Lazar and talk about you know, her really important animal law work, concentrating on the interests of animals in the family law context. Okay, I am here 
very pleased to be interviewing uh, Jody Lazar, a professor at uh, Dalhousie University in Halifax. Uh, Jody, you've been on Pawn Order a couple of times. Welcome back to Pawn Order. Thank you. It's always fun to be here. And uh, we have many things. Last time you were here, you were talking about uh, uh, the first animal law conference, the Canadian Animal Law Conference hosted by uh, Schulich Law School and uh, Animal Justice, and you were instrumental in um, getting that together. Maybe we just talk a little bit. I mean, you've been on for the, the conference before, but I, I just very briefly, um, um, why was it you wanted to put on a conference like this? Well, I've been thinking about and teaching and starting to do some research and writing in animal law um, for a while. And uh, I know that uh, there are a lot of people in Canada who are also thinking about this and working really hard. Um, animal justice, of course, as well as lots of profs throughout uh, Canadian legal academia who are teaching the class and and researching and writing um, on the subject. And, uh, and I knew that we've never had a, a national event. And given all of the uh, changes and momentum, the, the recent bills in Parliament, um, the the societal changes that we're seeing related to animals, I thought really it's time uh, for this to happen. I had an opportunity to organize something at the law school. Um, so that's why I approached Camille um, Lopchuk and, uh, and here we are. Now, uh, that's great, and we, we can't thank you enough for putting something like that together. It's really fantastic. I want to talk with you a bit about your research. Um, you and I have talked about this before. In fact, I think we wrote something about this together um, a while ago. Boy, time flies, doesn't it? it was, uh, we wrote something in the Globe and Mail about the, this case. But you, you, you research in a lot of areas, but one of your areas is family law. And uh, tell me a little bit generally about your research in the area of family law uh, insofar as it affects animals. Well, the um, what I'll call companion animal animal ownership upon family breakdown issue is uh, is an important one to me. Um, my doctoral research was in family law. I teach family law. I also teach animals and the law here at Dal. And uh, I was really excited when these two issues started to come together. I also um, know that it's a really important issue for so many people. You know, as we know, it's a it's a cliche, right? Pets are family. And, uh, and that's really true. And it's, uh, I think, becoming an increasing issue for couples who split up, who have an animal together, uh, you know, whether or not uh, that animal lived with one person or, or was uh, adopted, let's say, by the two together. But it's, uh, it's a subject that uh, is getting more and more of the attention uh, of courts, I think. And, um, and then, of course, there's the Baker versus Hermina case that we wrote about. Uh, I guess that, that came out almost two years ago now at the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal. And um, a really interesting case, I'd say both the majority and the dissent, in fact. And uh, I figured I would take that and run with it. So we've done a whole podcast, uh, but I'm not going to send our listeners all the way back to listen to our podcast about Baker versus uh, Hermina. Maybe you can tell me, uh, tell us just a little bit about the facts of that case, because you're going to tell us a little bit after that about your, the research you've done on it. So perhaps just give our listeners a sense of the facts of the case. Sure. So uh, the case is about uh, a gentleman named Mr. Baker and uh, his partner at the time, Ms. Harmina. They were together for a little while, um, maybe two years in total. And just around the beginning of the relationship, uh, a, a dog was uh, acquired, Maya, a, a Bernadoodle. 
And um, the court found that Mr. Baker uh, was the owner in law of Maya, that the the uh, adoption or purchase papers were, were in his name. So technically he was the legal owner. But uh, the question there really was um, whether or not Ms. Harmina could also uh, be a joint owner uh, after their breakup, given that uh, she did, uh, I would say, the majority of the, the work and uh, in in raising Maya up until um, up until the couple split up, and um, and I would say put a lot of uh, care and energy and time and resources and money into um, into Maya. Um, so the case at the Newfoundland and Labrador uh, Court of Appeal uh, was about whether. Um, the two of them could jointly own Maya in law, even though Mr. Baker was the uh, sort of legal or formal owner. Unfortunately, the majority of the court appeal said no. While I think their analysis is really interesting, and I think I'll probably talk about that in a minute, um, they were not, uh, they didn't decide to to, to uh, give joint ownership to the two of them. The uh, dissenting judge in that case, Justice Lois Hoig, she would have found that both uh, Ms. Hermina and Mr. Baker jointly owned Maya um, in a really interesting analysis, which, um, which uh, I would argue that uh, other courts uh, might want to adopt. So what did you, you've done a research paper on this and you're sort of looking at the case and uh, I think there's a lot of interesting aspects to this case as well. Partly, I mean, there's what's interesting about this case is you can approach it from an animal justice case. You can also approach it as an access to justice case. The part where, what drives me crazy is the court's trying to say, well, I love when the courts try to declare what's not important for the courts. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't hear these things because we're deciding what's important and what's not. I, I, I always, I never thought that was what the courts were supposed to do. But anyway, I, I want to focus on the animal stuff because, of course, one of the things they're saying is uh, inherently, well, this animal stuff isn't important enough for the courts. Um, so, so what did your, what did your, what does your research paper look at in specific, and, and what directions does it go in? Yeah, so my paper uh, goes, um, takes a couple steps back to uh, sort of survey the area of law leading up to this case. And um, it looks at, at some of those cases that, that you just mentioned, these cases um, that say uh, sort of with similar facts and, and couples, uh, you know, fighting it out about, about who gets the dog. Um, and a lot of those judges uh, come out and say this is utterly uh, a waste of the court's time and, uh, and that we shouldn't be encouraging uh, the public and litigants to use the courts this way. You know, it's just a dog. A dog is a dog and that kind of thing. That's obviously really discouraging um, for, you know, for us as animal lawyers. Um, but I would say uh, also for people that live with animals and also I would say most of the general public who probably – Agree that uh, you know a companion animal is is worth fighting for, really, as a member of the family. So I look at some of those cases, um, and then I look at uh, some other cases which go in the complete opposite direction, which uh, which actually do look at uh, what might be in the best interests of the dog. Um, it was an early case out of Ontario from the 1980s where uh, where a couple was uh, was separating, and the the judge. Uh, decided that uh, the dog should live with one of the spouses because he had a, a better house and a bigger yard that backed onto like a green belt that was uh, really more um, suitable for the dog in question. But at the same time, also um, 
awarded the other spouse uh, visitation. Mm-hmm. I think uh, two nights a, or one night a week and every other weekend, as you would as you would with children. And and the judge did that because uh, doing so would not have negatively impacted the dog's relationship with the sort of primary custodial owner, which really has sort of strong echoes of family law. Um, so um, so what I do is sort of. Uh, Talk a little about that uh, that spread of cases, uh, really just to say that the state of the law in this area is uh, is pretty unclear. Um, it's a bit of a gamble going to court because you might get a really sensitive judge, judge sensitive to the issue, uh, really interested in uh, in taking it seriously and ensuring that the animal goes to the best place and that both people who have an interest in the animal get to, you know, continue that relationship. Or you might end up with a judge who says, you know, your animal is worth the same thing as a set of cutlery. And don't waste my time. It's interesting you put it that way. We could uh, have a panel, you know, at a conference sometime. We could talk about it being uh, animal law is a gamble. I like the way you put that because to me, what you've just described does not apply just to this area. It applies to just about every area of animal law, whether it's an animal cruelty prosecution where it's a gamble. And I've dealt with, of course, some civil cases where, you know, even where you have even leaving aside for the moment the the issue of negligence or liability, even where our, I've had cases where liability is clearly accepted, and then it's still a gamble. How far can you push in the negotiation stage in order to get it? Because you realize that the case law is a gamble. The case law, as it's stated, not great. Can you get the judges to evolve? Can you get the right judge in terms of pushing these things forward? And I think that's such a negative thing for animals. I have I one of my favorite comments or one of my own favorite sort of phrases, it comes from me. I, I shouldn't quote myself on Paw and Order. But I do say is that cruelty lies in the ambiguity. I've always felt that's true. The, or, and, and obviously, this isn't quite a cruelty situation, but whatever you want to put it, negative outcomes for animals live in the ambiguity. What do you think about that? I agree entirely. Um, I mean, I would also add that 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 uh, that issue is not exclusive to issues relating to animals. There's a problem with uh, the justice system in many areas, including family law. Um, but I would agree that uh, going to court, uh, uh, in particular for an animal issue, is uh, is risky. Which is why um, it's not a bad idea to try to settle these cases, at least until. At least until we see more decisions like that coming out of the Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal. Okay. And, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? What What did you think? Um, you know, we, we've, again, we've talked about that uh, dissent by Justice Hoig, which I think is uh, uh, quite special. I should point out, by the way, just as an aside, I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, after that decision, I started looking more carefully at judgments by Justice Hoig more generally. And I'll tell you that um, more and more I've just become impressed by Justice Hoig. I think she's an excellent justice, uh, certainly in the area of criminal law. I think she does some really, really interesting things. So anyway, that was just an aside. I, I became obviously more sensitive to the type of stuff that she was doing. Um, what, what, what can you tell us about that that dissent and why you think it's significant or important? Well, I think Justice Hoig's dissent, uh, you know, bottom line is just eminently reasonable and aligns with what a lot of people are already thinking um, about about this issue. Um, she basically said that, uh, well, she said two really interesting things. On the sort of merits or substance of the case, she, um, she found that determining the answer to who owns the dog at the, at the end of a, a relationship upon family breakdown is a, is a really complex and nuanced question that can't be answered just by looking at an adoption or a purchase contract. Um, and she found that in order to, in order to answer it, 
that we should be turning to a list of factors uh, or principles. Uh, first, these principles actually were first set out in a, a Nova Scotia small claims court decision uh, called McDonald and, and Pearl. And, uh, and Justice Hoyt took these factors and, uh, and said these are the questions that we should be, be looking at. So things like whether the animal in question was with one of the people in the relationship uh, before the beginning of the relationship, any um, express or implied agreements about ownership. And, uh, you know, she doesn't really get into the details of what an implied agreement means. But I, I would argue that two people, you know, going to the shelter together to pick out an animal, even an animal that they're going to bring home together and, and raise together, even if the adoption contract is in one person's name, it's pretty implicit to me that they're agreeing to to share in uh, in the relationship, in the work, etc. Especially when the evidence backs that up. I can see a situation, right? I, I can see, like, I'll just use me, right? Because I'm lazy. And and my wife and I went and got a dog quite recently, mainly because my daughter wouldn't shut up about it. So I finally caved in reluctantly, because to be perfectly honest, I don't really, I have two children. I don't feel I need any other responsibilities it's in my life. a lot of work to bring a dog into your house. And, and, and right now, my wife has decided she loves the dog and she's doing all the work. So, I mean... I paid for the animal. I literally, I, I mean, not, not just because it was my money. That's not what I mean. Like, I literally put my visa is on the statement, right? So I paid. It was expensive. It was at a rescue shelter. And you have to, rescue shelters are not cheap, right? Because you're essentially paying for the other animals. No, I know how it works. You're also paying for an animal to be spayed and neutered. No, 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 no. no. I, I'm okay with that. No, but my animal, so because my animal is a small animal, you're yeah. paying for the big animals. So we bought a smaller dog, which is a chihuahua. Like, sure. a, it was a chihuahua mix. But the chihuahua mixes pay for the pit bulls that no one wants to adopt because they have to stay longer. Anyway, I, I'm not complaining. That's that's perfectly fine. We pay for it. So, so my visa bill is on it. I'm pretty sure I filled out the application. Right. So it's like, but so what? Like at the end of the day, sure. Would I have some custody rights of the animal if my don't worry, we're not splitting up. But if that happened, but but my wife has been the primary caregiver and that's what the evidence shows. So further to that, Justice Hoig would look at who purchased or raised the animal, raised the animal being key in this conversation, who exercised care and control of the animal and who bore the burden of care and comfort for the animal, as well as who paid for the expenses related to the animal's upkeep. And as you say, dog food is expensive. Dog walking, dog sitting, you know, uh, vet bills, all of that. So it's pretty clear from all of these things that, you know, who owns the dog or who is in the sort of uh, more meaningful relationship with the dog, let's say, is really not only a question of who formerly paid for the animal. Well, I think that's right. The only thing that worries me about things like expenses and stuff like that is if you're in, a, which is no longer traditional, a, non, a now a non-traditional home like mine and my wife's, technically I pay for those expenses. My wife is not currently working because she's still raising our children at the moment. So technically I'm paying for all. So I would check off all of Justice Hoig's uh, tests, even though I'm conceding to you that I don't really take care of the dog. I don't think that's true because uh, Justice Hoy also looks at who exercises care and control, who trains the the dog, who walks the dog, etc., those strike me as the more meaningful factors at the end of the day, because if it was with, if it was, if it was a child, for example, we wouldn't really, is that one of the factors? You're more the family expert than I, but is one of the, who buys the children clothing? Like, it seems to me that seems to be way down the list of priorities. And again, I'm not knocking Justice Hoig because I agree all those other factors you've listed, but it's interesting that the costs still get in there in some way. 
I would say with respect to children, that's a really complicated question, but short answer, no. Okay. Yeah. So um, where does your research go from there? Because we're coming to the end of our interview. Like, where does it go that you think is important from there? I just want to add one other thing about the Baker and Harmina case. Justice Hoig's dissent is excellent, um, not only for the factors, but also that she sort of uh, takes on all of these judges who say this is a waste of time. She says, frankly, this isn't a waste of time. When people have legal disputes, that is what the courts are for. My favorite part, I have to interject, my absolute favorite part. Absolutely. Like, I, I, I take no issue, you know, I, I have to say it. Sorry, I just can't help it because I, I, I don't know about you, but in my course, I throw in Baker versus Hermina, but I also put in Henderson versus Henderson, that ridiculous case from Saskatchewan. You want to deny the claim, fine, deny the claim, do whatever. Stop telling us it's a waste of time. So I, that stuff just drives me crazy. Well, the, uh, the silverware uh, analogy was not out of nowhere. <laughs> Okay, sorry, and you wanted to say? <laughs> I just I just want to say as well that the majority here does do some interesting stuff. The majority is not uh, not dismissive of the importance of the issue like some of those other judges. And, uh, and I won't get into the details of their analysis because it, it is a, a complex area of family law. But basically, they say that it might be possible to demonstrate that uh, someone who is not a legal owner of an animal has... Um, has the right to be granted a constructive trust in that animal because of their contributions, either in in kind or again financially, to the uh, you know care and maintenance of the animal. And I think that that uh, is an interesting place that the law can go with respect to uh, companion animals in these types of cases. Interesting. I could see flaws, though. I'm sure you don't love the trust idea as much, do you? Because it seems, I mean, obviously we like the idea better of like more thinking along the lines of a child than along a, a property device, effectively. A, a, the trust is a financial or property-like device, and I realize that animals are a property, sure, but I'm not sure that's the way I'd want to go with that. I will say that, you know, you can't uh, see us talking, but every time I talk about who owns the animal, I'm cringing a little bit. And all of this is within the context of the idea that animals are, are property, you know, uh, certainly not an endorsement uh, or uh, agreement with that categorization, but uh, I'm writing in that paradigm at least. Sometimes we have to. That's the way it works. Jody. it's been fantastic. Thanks so much, first of all, for all the work that you do and getting this conference together, uh, the first conference on Canadian animal law. And just, uh, just uh, we need lots of people working on these things from every angle. And your work on family law has been uh, really inspirational. So thanks so much for uh, being a part of it. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure being here. All right, we're back. Interesting interview with Jody, But now we're back with everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Everybody's favorite part of the show, Camille. It was confirmed at last month's conference. Yeah. At the conference. The students said so. Heroes and Zeros. Go ahead. We've got a couple Atlantic heroes. We're going Atlantic. Uh, We're going Atlantic. That's right. So, our first hero is the city of Halifax. Halifax Regional Municipality is considering a ban on using animals in entertainment on municipal properties. Uh, here, so here. A, a city councillor, yeah, here, here, a city councillor put forward a motion to get a staff report on this topic to see what the city could do. And that's usually the first step when the city wants to do something, they, they get a staff report on the issue. So they're going to look at whether it's appropriate to do this, how they can structure it. And, uh, you know, I, I can say, Peter, I, I think we're going to try to push, push them to do something a little bit broader. And uh, instead of just municipal property, maybe consider using it, animals and entertainment for public events at all. Um, but 
the band really came about, I think, Peter, and I don't, I'm not really privy to the background, but there was a bull riding event in Halifax earlier this year that was really strongly opposed and upsetting to a lot of people because bull riding causes a lot of distress to the poor victims, the animals who are used. So I'm just encouraged to see the council taking this seriously and, and thinking about how to stop it. Me too, Camille. And what I love about this story in particular is that it combines both of our hobby horses. <laughs> I think those horse hooves have, have disappeared, Camille. It combines both of our hobby horses because, of course, any political story allows you to chime in, as I'm assuming you'll do any moment, that if you live in Halifax, be sure to write to your city councillor. So that's your hobby horse. But my hobby horse... Well, this horse, is great. I didn't even have to say it. You did it for me. <laughs> but my hobby horse, Camille, which I've brought up many times before, is this idea of the importance of incremental change. And to me, um, it, it is just much more difficult to deal with what I would say are the pressing issues involving animals and animal protection when we still haven't gotten around to using, you know, to banning the use of animals in entertainment. And it seems to me that if we can get rid of entertainment, which is probably the least legitimate purpose we have left, uh, that we continue to allow animals to be used and often abused in these circumstances, that we're, it's going to be almost impossible to raise issues that are more complex, like fish welfare in fish farms. Like it's just, it's very hard when you start to compare and you realize, wait a minute, we're still riding bulls and, you know, torturing them along the way. Terrible stuff. Well, it's very powerful to be able to point to these types of victories too, when you're talking about other issues with legislators and saying, look, attitudes are evolving. We've done X already. Now it's time to do Y. Absolutely. And Camille, we don't have to look far to find our zero. In fact, we've already mentioned them. That's right. The zero is going to oh the God. fish farm in Newfoundland that allowed those uh, 1.8 million salmon fishes to suffocate, basically, uh, to death. It, it really does break my heart. And let me just... Uh, it, 1.8 million. Yes, yeah, Newfoundland's yeah. North <laughs> I Harvest Sea Farms. Yeah, North Harvest Sea Farms, congratulations. When you, when you, you know, have problems in your setup that are, you love this, Camille, it's blamed on higher than normal water temperatures in late summer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If we yeah, have a who system. Who could have foreseen that? Who could, who could foreseen that? It's not like that. we have a warming planet or anything. Water temperature problems are going to cause. I mean, when you read the story, it's just brutal. It's just absolutely, absolutely problematic. And the funny thing is it's the fisheries unions that are that are the ones complaining in this story. Like the whole story makes me want to throw up. 1.8 million fish died slowly, terribly. Ah. But oh, jobs! Yeah, oh, that's exports. the nature oh, and the, the smell. Economy. That's the, the smell. Yeah, the smell, the weight of the dead oh, fish. Oh, don't forget the smell. The How inconvenient to humans that they've got to smell their rotting bodies after they suffer to death. Oh. It's just brutal. It's really, it's really upsetting and really brutal. That's all I can say. Big zero. Ah, oh, big zero, Newfoundland. And Newfoundland, I must say, has not been uh, big on the Zero Express. You know what I'm saying? Like they, No, they kind of fly under the radar. Well, we've had, I wouldn't say this is the first Newfoundland. We've had them before, but, you know, they're getting their tally up. We, You want your tallies up for our, you know, special anniversary show way into the future, Camille. Um, you want them on the hero side, not the zero side. Yeah, I agree. Well, right. fantastic. Whew, that felt good, Camille. We got that out of our system. I am just delighted we are back on the bandwagon, and I'm more delighted that in just 
a couple of days, Camille, I'll see your smiling face in person. Nothing makes me more delighted. Can't wait, Peter. It's going to be a fun party. All right. Until then, we'll see you next time on the next Pawn Order. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pawn Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!